Welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories from Australia and around the world. Produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. The Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones and the nuclear age won't end because we run out of uh, nuclear technology, but the nuclear age is ending. This week, a good news story and some cautious optimism. On the 11th of June, Energy Resources of Australia Limited, the operator of the Ranger Uranium Mine in Kakadu, announced that they were abandoning their planned expansion, dubbed Ranger Three Deeps. The mine sits on the land of the Mirar people. In a media statement released after ERA's announcement, the Mirar state that they are intrinsically opposed to uranium mining in Kakadu, of which they never gave consent, and their opposition has been intergenerational. They've also stated that they will not support an extension of the lease at Ranger, which expires in 2021, stating that they would like to see the land rehabilitated and incorporated into Kakadu National Park and permanently protected from mining. Dave Sweeney is a long-time anti-nuclear campaigner with the Australian Conservation Foundation. He gives us a background to ERA's announcement. Yes, as you say, it's a very, very significant development. Um, For the last few years, Energy Resources of Australia, um, who operate the Ranger Mine, have um, put a lot of effort, political effort and technical effort and money, into talking up the Ranger Three Deeps project, an underground extension at Ranger. And the uh, announcement recently that they're not going to be advancing it is an extremely uh, positive one. It's really good news. Basically, it's a combination of things that that has brought this around and made this happen. One of the things is that the uranium price is very low. It's um, at very uh, depressed commodity price. Um, Aptly enough, um, it has been hard hit by the market fallout from Fukushima. And that's, that's appropriate because it was Australian uranium that was directly in Fukushima and is Fukushima fallout. And now because of the, um, the negative response around the world to nuclear power in, res- in, rela- in response to Fukushima, the uranium price has fallen. The other factors that made things hard for R3D was it's um, had a very short uh, project window. It, it, there's uh, a mandated end to mining and mineral processing operations at the Ranger lease, and that end is in January 2021. Now, that's not far away. We're talking in the middle of 2015. Um, It's only five years, and in terms of a major mining project, that's very short. So they had a very short window. They had a very low price. They had fixed and increasing cost, and they've had a run of um, horrible performance and PR. They've in December 2013, there was a massive leak of contaminants, uranium and acid slurry from a holding tank at the, at the mine site, which saw um, operations suspended for six months. They're, they have been not just losing contaminants, but they've been losing credibility and cash as well. The company has lost nearly $1 billion in uh, the past few years since Fukushima, nearly a billion dollars in losses to Energy Resources of Australia. So sitting behind all this is Rio Tinto. Now, Rio is one of the biggest resource companies in the world. ERA is an increasingly underperforming asset. 
it is uh, losing money, it is losing contaminants, it is costing the company credibility and reputational damage, and they're looking down the barrel of a highly complex and costly rehabilitation exercise to try and clean up that ranger site over the next few years. And uh, Rio Tinto basically did the numbers, did the projections, and came up with what so many others have come up with, which is that the numbers don't stack up. And actually, rather than digging a deeper hole, it makes more sense to stop that project and to move away and to move into an accelerated rehabilitation. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a really clear indication, as you said, of the closing of a chapter. It's not finished yet and there's more to play out, but it's a really clear indication of the closing of the chapter of uranium mining at the Ranger site. And that's a chapter that's lasted about 35 years so far. The opposition to uh, uranium mining at Kakadu uh, has been there since the beginning. Can you give us a bit of an oversight of that history and how uh, people have been campaigning in solidarity with the Mira people against uranium mining in Kakadu? Yeah, absolutely. And it is a long and convoluted one. And there were when Kakadu National Park was declared... There were three existing uh, mining interests or mining areas that were physically inside the park but never legally part of the park. So they were enclaves. People have called Kakadu a Swiss cheese park because of these three holes. They were all related to uranium. There was Ranger, Jabaluka and Kungara. Now, um, the, the mine that advanced was the Ranger mine on the lands of the Mirar people. Mira um, had both Ranger Mine and Jabaluka Deposit on their country. And they fought Ranger and they opposed Ranger. And it was imposed and Australian federal law was changed in order to ensure that they couldn't um, stop it. It was a no-consent lease, which meant that Aboriginal people, Aboriginal consent uh, was not required. And that consent was not forthcoming, but that didn't matter because there was political override. So there's been 35 years of imposition and industrial imposition in the area. And Ranger has, has trucked along at times quietly, at times noisily, uh, at times making a profit, at times losing money, but always contested. The campaign against the Muckety nuclear waste dump in South Australia could be said to be another very successful campaign led by traditional owners, a great success for, for the movement against uranium mining and, and nuclear energy. Are we seeing a turning of the tide, do you think, Dave? Look, I think there has been, um, and there continues to be, a really a really deep-seated, powerfully held and, uh, and powerfully expressed uh, Aboriginal concern and, and opposition to many nuclear developments. We see that regularly in relation to uranium exploration and mining projects. We see it in relation very much, like you said, to the Muckety proposal, which just at this time a year ago saw the federal government uh, in the face of sustained pressure from that community who were opposing a radioactive waste dump on their country. We see um, that victory. And, you know, I think there is a really strong sense that people, many, many Aboriginal people know that there is something very unique, very long-term, very negative about this um, this industry. And Aboriginal people in Australia have uh, borne a disproportionate burden, uh, whether it's through 
weapons testing on Maralinga lands, whether it's through proposals for radioactive waste dumping in South Australia and the Northern Territory, or whether it's through uh, the impacts of uranium mining. And so I think that shared understanding and those stories are shared and the resistance is shared and Aboriginal people very much have, um, uh, in the in the nuclear-free space, worked closely with environment groups and other civil society groups and really uh, worked closely to support other affected Aboriginal communities and, and peoples. And I think we are seeing... Um, not so much a turning of the tide, but a continuing hardening of the resistance to this industry and its impacts in Australia, and that's, that's really positive. Ranger leaves behind a toxic legacy and a complex and costly rehabilitation effort. Lauren Meller from the Northern Territory Environment Centre explains. Well, it's a huge technical challenge ahead of the companies now and ahead of the Northern Territory and Commonwealth Government uh, to oversee that clean-up operation. They have some very strict environmental requirements which the companies are uh, legally obligated to abide by and one of those is uh, to isolate the radioactive tailings that they have there on site. Uh, uh, two pits worth of radioactive tailings need to be isolated from people in the environment um, for a period of 10,000 years, um, which really represents uh, how, how dangerous into the long term this, um, this project will be and how difficult it will be for governments and the company to actually to abide by that. So... Um, essentially what they need to do by 2021 when the mining lease expires um, and perhaps earlier if we can push the companies to accelerate that rehabilitation plan, uh, Rio Tinto and ERA will need to start the backfill of those pits. Some of that work is already underway and clay cap those pits, ensure that the radioactive tailings are isolated, uh, ensure that erosion and other um, other problems that have manifested uranium rehabilitation efforts elsewhere around the world uh, doesn't happen there. And they need to bring the site up to a standard whereby it can be incorporated into the surrounding World Heritage Listed National Park. We have serious doubts that that can ever happen. Uh, but that is the standard that the company is, is supposed to be obligated to, and we want to see that happen. So we're hoping that that rehab effort is started sooner rather than later, now that there's no longer any productive mining on site. Uh, so we want to see the company really putting that investment into getting that work happening and also for a transition plan for the company, uh, for the community there, sorry. Um, we've seen Rio Tinto has form uh, abandoning communities where it's previously had profitable mining enterprises like Gove in, in the Northern Territory as well. Just recently they pulled out leaving just six months for a, a transition plan for their workforce and for the communities which largely were mining reliant there. So we definitely don't want to see a situation like that where the companies abandon their responsibilities to the community, to the Mira people, um, and make good on their promises to actually properly fund uh, the rehab effort here. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. We're speaking with Lauren Meller about the cancellation of the range of Three Deeps uranium mine in Kakadu. I asked Lauren how ERA and Rio Tinto can be held accountable to their promises to rehabilitate the mine site. Well, I think the Mirai have, have said categorically they want to see a transition plan to a post-mining Alligator Rivers region. Uh, this is something we've not seen for 30 years there where people, again, have control of the destiny and development um, happening in their region. So um, so we want to obviously work with the Mirai and other regional stakeholders out there to ensure that that clean-up begins, that the workforce is transitioned into that clean-up phase and it's not simply uh, closed down and abandoned. Um, we think there's a lot of employment opportunities, a lot of development opportunities 
um, merging into the rehabilitation effort and into uh, jobs throughout Kakadu and improving the ranger and land management programs, which uh, the Mirai and others are invested in out there. So we think that definitely it's, it's the start of a new and, and positive phase for the community out there. Um, but the big challenge, of course, as you mentioned, is uh, ERA, the operator, has lost upwards of a billion dollars in recent years. They've got less than $300 million in cash reserves. They're facing the prospect of going bankrupt as this clean-up um, process goes forward. So the only hope to fully fund that rehab effort is through Rio Tinto, the parent company, which is definitely not uh, short, of, short of the money, but they don't have any legal obligation to the site. So what we've been doing and will continue to do is uh, very publicly hold this company to account for its promises to rehabilitate the area to make sure that Rio Tinto is linked to this effort and 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 its reputation is basically staked on that that promise to clean up and to the community there. So I think that's what that's what that's what we'll need to do in the coming years to make sure that this rehab effort actually goes forward and is completed. Do you think this uh, represents? a turning in the tides of, of the fortunes of uranium mining in Australia, given the plummet of the uranium price since the Fukushima disaster. And, of course, Australian uranium was found in, in the reactors that melted. Um, do you see this as, as kind of the, the turning of what sort of, you know, the history of, of campaigning against uranium mining and, and nukes certainly hasn't always been one of victories, Um yeah, is this? Do you see this as a positive turn, or do we? Do you still see there has been a really big fight ahead, with there being you know other still other active uranium mines in Australia? I think we've definitely seen uh, the the start of a very big downturn in the sector, as you mentioned post Fukushima. There's been no recovery in the world price for uranium. There's no Australian uranium operator at the moment currently making a profit. Many of the large players are downsizing their their uranium assets and that sort of thing, and and trying in a sense to to uh, exit the sector as much as possible. Um, so, I mean, obviously that's a, a great signal um, for people who have long campaigned for an end to uranium mining in Australia. Um, but definitely the challenge now remains to make sure that any closure and clean-up efforts for this incredibly risky industry, which poses long-term public health and environmental risks, uh, is done to the best possible standards that is managed and the costs are uh, paid for by the companies and not the public because the risk is with the downturn of the sector, as we've seen right across the minerals, mineral resource sector, companies trying to extract themselves from obligations to clean up to manage those sites into the long term, simply putting them in uh, care and maintenance mode um, and the like and then handing them over to the taxpayer to manage into the future. And with uranium mine, that future management could extend into the hundreds, you know, if not thousands of years. So it's a huge public liability if we can't get it right and make sure that these companies are paying for uh, the cleanup of their operations. Speaking about the the legacy um, of Ranger, there's been well over 200 incidents, environmental incidents at Ranger since 1979, since mm. it began. And the 2003 Senate inquiry into uranium mining um, noted a history of non-compliance uh, by the Ranger uh, uranium mine operators what have been the environmental and cultural impacts of that mine? Well, as Amira said in their statement, um, the, the environmental and cultural impacts have been so significant over its 30-year operational life that they, they want to see an end to that as soon as possible. And this is the opportunity uh, with the economic downturn in the sector for that to occur. So I think they've been substantial. But what the challenges that we'll start to see now emerging 
uh, the failure for adequate regulation and monitoring to um, to hold these companies to account. So one of the major issues at the moment is we're starting to see spikes of contamination in Galungal Creek, which runs through the mining lease and into Kakadu National Park. Uh, in the 2000 Senate inquiry that you mentioned, there was a recommendation that statutory requirements uh, to detect and take action against any contamination trends in that area be applied to Galungal Creek. Uh, more than 10 years on, that still hasn't occurred. So the company has dragged its feet. The regulators haven't required the company to implement statutory requirements. And now that we're starting to see spikes of electrical conductivity linked to leakage from the mine's tailings dam, those kind of issues are going to start plaguing the management of Kakadu and certainly having a long-term impact on the park um, into the future. So as, as the mine closes, some of these other problems will, will start to emerge and they can be linked to the failure to properly regulate the failure of the company to actively put in place monitoring and, and um, its own systems to make sure that this wasn't occurring. Climate change is presenting uh, new and really serious risks for both uranium mining and also uh, energy production. Uh, big question marks over uh, uranium reactors and uh, really their fate in, in a, a more unstable world uh, in terms of the climate so do you see there has been significant and sort of perhaps until now unforeseen risks that uh, extreme weather events due to climate change could pose to a safe and successful rehabilitation um, or containment of the range of uranium mine? Yeah, I definitely think there's been uh, a little bit of work and thought put into this, this particular challenge for the rehab effort, but certainly not enough from a company or government perspective we had the CR, sorry, the CSIRO do some modelling a few years back, which looked at sea level rise and how that would potentially affect the wetlands around Kakadu and around range and uh, range and mine site area. So um, there's certainly challenges with trying to isolate radioactive tailings, as I mentioned, for hundreds, even thousands of years, um, in essentially an unstable uh, structure, which is um, vulnerable to erosion, which is vulnerable to sea level rise and all of those issues. And we're far from out of the woods yet in terms of water management on site, which has been one of the major issues plaguing the operator um, during its operational life. We've had incidents where back in 2011, the tailings dam nearly topped its banks in the um, in the wet season there, which would have had catastrophic events, um, sorry, would have had catastrophic consequences for downstream wetlands throughout Kakadu. We've had numerous incidents like that where the the uh, water management on site has been less than adequate, where the government regulators have allowed them to store water in in a tailing stand which was nearing it, nearing topping its banks, and there's always been a problem with operating a uranium mine in the monsoonal tropics, uh, that you simply can't manage the amount of water that's, um, that's falling on that mine site and being captured in your water storage um, devices on site. So... Those problems, we're not out of the woods yet because the company has dragged its feet for so long on proper water remediation strategies like the brine concentrator, which was just brought online recently. Lauren Meller from the Environment Centre, NT. And as we look at the possible end to uranium mining in Kakadu, the future of the nuclear industry more broadly looks to be in terminal decline. Here's Dave Sweeney again. Yeah, look, the industry is in, is in considerable trouble. It's a, it's a real... Um, the, the Fukushima accident has really hit the, the nuclear industry. Its social licence has uh, been steadily undercut and is shrinking. 
um, the costs of compliance and the increased costs of retrofitting uh, ageing reactors to make them uh, more uh, acceptable to meet regulatory requirements. Those costs are going up. And the uh, growth of renewables and alternatives is, is um, really pricing nuclear out of the market. And so what we're seeing is an industry that is under enormous pressure. Uh, it's, it's in dramatic decline in, um, in Western nations. Let's, let's be clear about this. It has plateaued. It is flatlining in, in the Western world. Um, and there are about a quarter of the reactor fleet has to be, it has to come offline in the, the next decade. It's reached the end of its operating life. So the industry faces real challenges. It is pushing and promoting growth in India and in China. That growth um, exists, but it's, it's more modest than the industry trumpets. And it's also being significantly um, outpaced by the, by the rapid growth in renewables in those two nations as well. So I think what we're seeing is it's, it's, it's not um, like the nuclear era is over. There's strong pushes and it has a massive institutional bias and it has a strong hold, a strong political hold and a strong hold in, um, still in the big end of town. But there is increasingly an awareness that, um, that it is lacking social licence, that it's not cost competitive and that the problems of proliferation, terrorism and waste have not been resolved and are effectively uh, not able to be resolved. The growth of renewables is seeing uh, countries um, taking uh, that option far more. And we can see there's no nuclear reactors happening now in Japan. There's a, a debate about bringing them back online. But the third largest industrial economy in the world is not working with nuclear power at the moment. And communities have vowed to contest the restart of reactors. Uh, the fifth largest industrial economy in the world, Germany, has made a clear commitment from a conservative government to move away from nuclear power um, in the next five years, uh, five to seven years. And that is uh, an amazing commitment and they're on track to doing it. So um, this industry it has a lot to play out and it is an industry um, that is cornered and feels uh, that its existence is threatened is an industry to be never to underestimate. Um, but um, the, the nuclear industry, through a combination of community pressure, economic non-viability um, and profound and unresolvable concerns about waste management and safety and security issues, uh, I think you know, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones and the nuclear age won't end because we run out of uh, nuclear technology. But the nuclear age is ending um, and it is being eclipsed and, uh, you know, uh, the, the renewable um, sector is the fastest growing energy sector in the world. So like we often say that the energy future is, is uh, renewable rather than radioactive and increasingly that's being mapped around the world. Dave Sweeney from the ACF. If you're interested in the campaign against uranium mining and the nuclear fuel cycle in Australia, Friends of the Earth's annual Radioactive Exposure Tour is coming up from the 27th of June to the 8th of July. For more info, go to radioactivetour.com. And now a quick update on an issue we've covered previously on Earth Matters, the campaign against the nine mega-coal projects in the Galilee Basin in western Queensland. Ellen Roberts from the Mackay Conservation Group 
gives us an update on a legal challenge they're making to one of those projects. So we actually initiated that challenge um, in January this year. Um, and really, at that time, the, the basis of our court challenge was essentially about the greenhouse gas emissions from Carmichael. So as your listeners might know, this is going to be one of the biggest coal mines um, in Australia and certainly one of the biggest in the world at, um, about at 60 million tonnes per annum. So what happened was Greg Hunt basically said that because most of the coal is going to be burnt overseas um, in India, then that means that I don't have to take into account what this contribution um, of, the, of the burning of coal from Carmichael will mean for climate change. So essentially in that sense it was, we were saying he misinterpreted the law, um, that when you're assessing something like a massive coal mine then you have to take all environmental impacts into account and that includes climate change, particularly when you're looking at such a massive coal mine. Um, and then subsequent to that, we've made two further additions to our court case. The second one um, in March was looking at Adani's environmental record, um, which is quite poor in India. Um, they built a port, um, the Mundra port in Gujarat, and um, there are essentially um, a lot of environmental devastation associated with that, but including some works that were done um, without permits. And so Adani was investigated by the Indian government. And Greg Hunt knew about this um, when he made the decision to approve Carmichael and, and chose to ignore it. Um, so we think that's obviously really important, you know, looking at how a, a company that's going to be operating not only one of the biggest coal mines in Australia, but also a huge railway line and then also a port um, in the Great Barrier Reef World Heritage Area, that, that their environmental record is really important. Um, and then just recently, um, we um, in, also added a, a third ground, <laughs> so we're sort of coming at this from all sides. And this one is more of a technical legal challenge, but um, has a strong basis in, in previous environmental law cases. So this was essentially looking at whether Greg Hunt had taken into account the advice of his department um, when approving the Carmichael Mine. And the Department of Environment... Um, produces what's called conservation advices for different vulnerable species, in this case the yakka skink and the ornamental snake. And, um, you know, it's required under um, federal environment laws that the environment minister take those conservation advices into account, and and, um, and Greg Hunt didn't in this case. And so we'll be relying on a case um, from Tasmania from a couple of years ago. Your listeners might remember the Tarkine case, which was a challenge to a mine down there, and uh, Tony Burke, then Federal Environment Minister, failed to take into account the conservation advice um, for the Tasmanian devil. So that's essentially the, the precedent that we're relying on. It's, yeah, we're, we're keen to see that we build on, on any successes that other environment groups have had in their legal challenges. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Australia's weekly environmental justice program for community radio. I'm Tisha Ahern. If you missed any of today's show... You can find our podcasts at 3cr.org.au slash earthmatters. Earthmatters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the show out to you. Earthmatters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Kulin Nations. You can contact us on 03 or earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. I hope you can tune in next week 
for more Earth Matters. Thank you.